Good evening, church. How's everyone tonight? That's good. Um, it's, it's sunny and bright, so it's, it's not as dark and gloomy as, as the week before. So praise God for great weather. Praise God for good health and uh, for a week that, that's been um, probably busy for most of us, um, but a time to just reflect on the goodness of the Lord um, as we come together in worship tonight. Um, and let's prepare our hearts before we, we sing praises to the Lord. Um, let's, um, let's be reminded um, on his love for us. His steadfast love for us never ends, it never ceases. So each and every day we wake up, we see the goodness of God, we can breathe, we can eat, and that's, um, yeah, and that's a blessing from God in itself. So let us all rise, let us stand, let us sing together our first song. Stop the Lord Almighty. 
fights our battles, he goes before us. And for that, he's worthy of every song we sing, every praises that we could bring. Let us ask the Lord to be in our hearts and that he is the king in our hearts. Let's sing our next song. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. we could ever Oh, 
come to the Lord's Supper communion, I'd like to share a Bible verse with you from 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Did you ever think about that before? That God didn't save sinful angels. He chose not to save sinful angels, but he chose to save sinful humans like you and me. God could have chosen with perfect justice to have left us in our sins awaiting judgment, just like he did the angels. He could have chosen to save no one. But God in his mercy chose to save all those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. God chose to come in the form of a human to pay for human sin. He didn't choose to come in the form of an angel to save angels. But he came in the form of a human to save us. It's a startling verse. God in his love decided to save you and me. In his overwhelming mercy and generosity. He took on human flesh. He left the most glorious place in all the universe, the heavenly throne, and swapped it for the most shameful place in all the universe, the Roman cross. In his love, he decided to save human beings. And there was no other way for him to do it but through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it for you and for me. Let us take a moment to think about that truth. Please spend just a moment thinking about that and reflecting on that truth. Father, we know you could have chosen with perfect justice to have left us in our sins awaiting judgment just as you did the sinful angels. But we thank you that in your overwhelming mercy you saved us. And so, Father, we bring to you now and confess our sins in the quietness of our own hearts. Those things that have not pleased you that we have done this week, we bring to you right now. Father, we are sorry for them. And we thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins and makes them as white as snow. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might live a life this week that is pleasing 
to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you to stand. If this is, uh, if you're, you call on the name of the Lord, uh, if you are a Christian, we ask you to come and take of the bread and the cup. If you're not yet a Christian, we ask you to remain in your seat. No one will think anything less of you. Please come forward, take the cup, take the bread, hold on to them, and we'll take them together in just a few moments. God, in his overwhelming mercy, sent us his son. Let us eat and be thankful. There was no other way that we could be saved but by the blood of Jesus shed for us. Let us drink and be thankful. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Please stand. Let's continue in worship. Let's sing our next song together. To our God, whose name is beautiful, more beautiful than anything.
else that we know. How beautiful it is to be called your child. And you moved in mercy for us sinners and sent a Savior and your Holy Spirit into our hearts to bring us to faith in that Savior Jesus Christ. You keep us in the faith so that we are brought to your glory. It is your work from beginning to the end. That the greatest good offers the greatest action, and that is love, to the greatest need, that is us. By sending the greatest treasure, Jesus, in the greatest invitation to everyone in the life everlasting. To God be the glory, and in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Before we take a seat, please say hello to the person next to you. Good evening, church. So last month, we had 70 young adults and 12 volunteers embark to Bunbury during the long weekend to play state youth games. And during this weekend, many different sports were played, varying physical sporting levels. Overall, from the 20 churches competing, Subi finished a very competitive third place and coming second in the Compassionate Cup. Considering the two churches that beat us, they had 35 more players, so it's a very mighty effort that we came third. From all us co uh, coordinators, we want to take this time to thank all our volunteers who generously gave up their time for this weekend. Without our volunteers, this weekend doesn't happen. We also want to thank the church for their prayers over the weekend. It was a very great weekend full of fun, fellowships and sports, with many fruitful discussions and friendships being made. We do have our State Youth Games reunion event coming up next Sunday on the 9th at 6pm at the church, where we have a range of sports and board games on offer and to share dinner together. This is not just a reunion and state youth games people event, it's for all young adults from 16 to 30 years old. There'll be no cost for this event, however we ask that you bring a plate of food to share. For more information please head to our Facebook page, Super Young Adults. Thank you. Thank you Toby. Well good evening everyone. Uh, welcome. If you're new or you're visiting with us today, a very warm welcome to you. We are so glad uh, that you're here. Uh, my name is Debbie Main, uh, if you haven't had the chance to meet me, uh, and I have the great privilege to serve on the ministry team here at Subi Church. 
Uh, I'm here, if you weren't aware, to introduce our new scripture at Subiverse for this month. So as a church family, we memorize one or two verses of scripture every month together, and we allow God's word to get deep in our hearts and in our minds. We've been doing this for a few years, uh, and this year we're focusing on the attributes of God, uh, on who he is. And so this month we are memorizing this verse, which should hopefully come up behind me. Uh, You should also have a copy of this on a card that is nearby you or on a seat that you're sitting on, which is James chapter 1, verse 17. It speaks about the immutability of God. This is a particular attribute of God that speaks about the fact that God does not change in who he is. Uh, God is fully perfect. There is no growth area in God that he needs to improve in. And this is good news for us as his people. Uh, Therefore, we can trust that God is perfectly faithful in all of his promises to us. He is perfect in love, in mercy, in holiness, and so forth. And so let me commend you to take this card home with you today and to uh, meditate meditate on it this month as a family or as a small group. And so now we're going to say it together. So we usually say the reference first and then we say the actual verse. Are we all ready? Should be pretty easy this month. So let's say it all together. James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Now, this is usually the time of the service where we would dismiss the kids to their Subi Kids classes, but I'm not sure if you have noticed, the church does look a little bit different. It's in the midst of being transformed for Kids Holiday Club, which is starting on Monday. And so, parents and kids, this is your reminder that you're not having any Subi Kids classes this weekend, or next weekend, sadly, but this will allow our volunteers to have a good rest before a big week of Kids Holiday Club. So we've now come to a time in our service where I will remind you to please fill in a Connect card. Uh, This is both for our regulars and for our newcomers, and they're a really helpful way for us to get to know know you, uh, that you've been to church this weekend, and a helpful way for you to RSVP for our events. Uh, Most of all, it is really helpful to let us know how we might be praying with and for you. And so as a team, along with our elders, uh, we pray through these requests every week. And it really is a joy for us to be able to journey with you in prayer. So I would encourage you now to take the time to fill in a Connect card. You can do this physically or you can scan the QR code on the chair on the back of the seat in front of you. We've also now come to a time of offering. Uh, Offering is an important part of our worship to God. We give with joy and thanksgiving to God, not because we have to, but because we get to, as his children who have been adopted into his family through the work of Jesus Christ. And so we encourage everyone to give electronically if you can, uh, but if you wish to give physically, that's fine. There's just a box on the left-hand side wall as you're exiting the auditorium for you to use. Uh, Would you join me as we pray for our offering? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift which comes from you. And most of all, we thank you for the precious gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has loved us and given his life for us. And we ask, Lord, that as we give to you this week, that we might do so with cheerful hearts, 
Father, we ask that you would use this money for the growing of your kingdom and for the sake of your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you might be filling in a Connect card, uh, I just have one brief announcement for you tonight, uh, that our community coffee morning is coming up. So this is going to be on Saturday, the 15th of July from 10 a.m. to 12 noon, right here in the church, just in the cafe. Uh, Community Coffee Morning is our monthly outreach event that we have here, and we get an opportunity to reach out to the local Subi community, especially to those who uh, who go to the farmer's markets every Saturday morning. So everyone is welcome to join us as we have conversations with um, people from the community who wouldn't usually come to a church service. So you're welcome to come for that. Uh, It's now time for us to uh, gather before the Lord in prayer as a congregation as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. So would you please join with me as I lead us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We are grateful that you do not change like shifting shadows, that you remain faithful to your promises and consistent in your love towards us, your children. We praise you for the unchanging message of the gospel, which gives us purpose in our days here on earth and hope for the life to come. We thank you for the time that was had by the young adults over State Youth Games, and we rejoice to hear of the fun and the fellowship that was had as well as the community that was strengthened. We pray, Lord, that you might continue to grow our young adults in unity and in their love for one another, but more so, would you grow them in their love and knowledge of Jesus to the glory of your great name. And Lord, we commit to you Kids Holiday Club this upcoming week. We are thankful for the work of Kanina and Ng and their team in their preparations for the decorations and for their faithfulness to make this week a great week for the kids who will come. We commit to you the 160 children who will attend and the 106 people who will serve them. We pray for good health and a sense of joy and anticipation for all who are involved. We pray especially that you would encourage and strengthen Mel, Iron, Shani and their team as they prepare to oversee Kids Holiday Club. We pray that things would run smoothly. And most of all, Lord, we pray for the gospel to be clearly proclaimed to these children, that seeds of the gospel might be sown in their hearts and that they might accept Jesus as their saviour and live for him as their king. Finally, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. As we come to hear your word preached, please prepare our hearts. Remove any distractions that might be around us. And unplug our ears to hear what you desire for us to hear from you today. We pray for our guest preacher this weekend, Ben Cornish. May he speak with clarity and conviction. May the words of his mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the one who is our saviour and our brother. Amen. This week's Bible reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. If you're able to, I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's word. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You may take a seat. Good evening, everyone. I'd just like to introduce our guest speaker. This is Ben Cornish. Let's give him a warm welcome. Uh, so Ben is from the States. Uh, he's come over to Perth this week to lead uh, and speak at the Power to Change conference, which is down in Bustleton. As you know, we have a close association with Power to Change, a university ministry. And so he's come over to speak there, and he's kindly uh, coming to address us this weekend. Uh, he's here with his wife Emily and his daughter Zoe uh, and we welcome you here. Um, he only got off the plane 24 hours ago and I think his plane flight was delayed 48 hours from the States. So uh, you're probably maybe not 100% ready to go but hopefully uh, we'll be praying that you, you'll get through the talk. Um, I hope you don't fall asleep during your own sermon. Right, right. Um, that's not a good look but uh, he's the president of Teaching Truth International uh, which exists to teach God's words to pastors and leaders around the world in countries where Bible training is uh, unavailable. And so that's a little snapshot of him. I'll hand, uh, hand uh, uh, you over to Ben right now. Thank you. Thank you. The, uh, the, the 48-hour delay fortunately happened uh, prior to visiting Brisbane, so we did have about a, a week to adjust to the jet lag. Any other lag is just my fault. Um, so, I have been working as a missionary since 2010 when I was commissioned to work with Power to Change in Brisbane. I worked there with my wife, uh, Emily, and uh, we had a wonderful time serving with Power to Change. Saw many lives transformed during that time. Uh, met one of my best mates, John Main, and uh, by God's grace, we have remained friends for many years. After those two years, we returned to the United States where I pursued a seminary degree and uh, began working with Teaching Truth International. Uh, the mission of Teaching Truth is to provide biblical and theological instruction for a group that we call the Forgotten Pastors. Uh, these are pastors and church leaders who live in remote parts of the world where they have no access to sound biblical instruction. Uh, they desire to be faithful to the Word of God, but access to that kind of training is simply not available. And so we go to them, we go to their villages and small parts of the world, and we bring training to them. One of the privileges that comes with this type of work is the opportunity to meet brothers and sisters from many parts of the world. We work in Central America, we are in South and East Asia, West Africa, East Africa, and we've had the opportunity firsthand to observe the state of the global church. Certainly not everywhere, uh, but many places. I think I have taken now 56 international trips around the world uh, to train pastors to visit with Christians. And most of the individuals we work with are among people groups that are considered to be reached with the gospel. Uh, they have churches, they have Bibles, and so the presence of churches in these places 
I think it raises a question for us, those of us who care about global missions. And the question is this, what is the task of the missionary? What is the task of missions in places where churches are already present? Places where the people are considered reached? A second question that I want to raise this weekend is what is the relationship between the task of missions and our own personal growth as disciples of Christ? Is there a relationship at all? We find answers to these questions in Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20. And if you haven't yet, I encourage you to open your Bibles or your Bible apps to follow along as we walk through this passage. And as we jump into this text, uh, we must remember the centrality of context if we are to understand any passage in Scripture. Of course, one of the challenges with a passage at the end of a book is that the entire Gospel of Matthew would serve as the literary context, and we certainly don't have time to review all of the book. We will, however, review three of the major themes in the Gospel of Matthew. All three of these show up in the Great Commission text. Number one, a major theme in Matthew's Gospel is the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. In fact, the word kingdom shows up 56 times through the Gospel of Matthew. A second major theme is fulfillment. Fulfillment. The Old Testament is pointing towards something, someone, and that is Jesus, his life, and his ministry. And we find in Matthew, it is filled with Old Testament quotations, about 50 of them. And on top of that, another 75 allusions to the Old Testament. Many of these, including messianic prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And so Matthew clearly desires for his Jewish readers to see Jesus as the Christ. He is the one that they have been waiting for. He wants them to put their faith in Jesus. A third major theme in Matthew's gospel is discipleship, and specifically Jesus' own instruction on discipleship. There are five main sermons that are found in Matthew's gospel, and in them, discipleship and following Jesus Christ is central. And so all of this we actually find in the Great Commission text, the reality of Christ's authority as the king, and the focal point on discipleship and salvation for the whole world. And of course, at this point in the book, we've already encountered the betrayal of Jesus. He's been arrested. He's been tried and crucified. He's been resurrected to life. And he has revealed himself to his disciples. And then we come to the end of the book, and Jesus gives the Great Commission. We've already read the passage. I'd like you to join me in prayer, and then we'll dig into it together. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us this commission. We are weak, and yet you have given to us the treasure of the gospel. You have called us to be disciples and to make disciples. Would you help us to do that? Help us also as we look at this 
passage of scripture. Would you help us to be faithful in our understanding of it? And of course, also in our living it out. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you like to take notes, I'll be walking through four points. I think this passage breaks down most naturally into four points. Point number one is the mission team. Who is on the mission team? And the answer is all of Jesus' disciples. Look at this in verse 16. Jesus instructs his disciples to go to the mountain, and when they arrive, they worship him. No surprise here, right? This is not surprising to us. Uh, if, if the gospel of Matthew is true, Jesus has resurrected, and the disciples saw him crucified, and now they see him alive again. It seems appropriate that, that they would come to him and worship him. What is more surprising is that some of his disciples doubted. Have you ever noticed this? Some of the disciples come to him, the resurrected Christ, and some of them doubted. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus commissioned every one of them with the Great Commission, including those who experienced something akin to doubt. What is that? Now, the word here is distazo. You can forget that if you like. That's not significant. But the meaning of the word is greatly important. Uh, we do not have a perfect English word for distazo. Doubt is pretty close, except for this problem. In English, we bring a certain connotation to that word. And that connotation is unbelief. We hear the word doubt and we think, unbelievers, unbelief. That's not the word. That is not the chosen word that Matthew uses. There's actually another word in Greek that conveys the doubt of unbelief. What is this? This is something that is closer to hesitation. Matthew is not suggesting that some of the 11 disciples were unbelievers. Not at all. Rather, the disciples are amazed and confounded by what they are witnessing with their eyes. Some feeling of disorientation. And apparently it's significant enough that it distracts them from worshiping Christ in that particular moment. They worshiped him, but some of them did something else. They doubted. Nevertheless, Jesus commissioned all of them to go make disciples of the world. And I think some Christians today miss this point. They think, look, the Great Commission, I love it, but it's not for me. My faith is just, it's not perfect. How could I partake in sharing the gospel with someone else when I know that my faith is not perfect? How could I disciple another believer when I have hesitations at times? Something like doubt. It's not unbelief, but it's something. But the Great Commission is for all Christians, all of them, including those whose faith is far from perfect. This is a great kindness of Jesus to include every one of us in his Great Commission. If we needed perfect faith, you realize there would be none of us to share the gospel. There would be no one left. 
He calls us as imperfect followers to partake in his perfect plan to reach the world. We don't need to be hesitant. And why is that? Point number two is who is the sender of the mission? The sender of the mission is authoritative, the authoritative, and present triune God. I get this from verses 18 and 20. You know, all Christians experience some level of hesitation, fear, when it comes to the Great Commission. And and Jesus, recognizing this, immediately reminded his disciples that he possessed all authority in heaven and on earth. Which, by the way, that's all of it. That's all of the authority that exists or can exist. And it's all his. It's been granted to him by God the Father. Now, some have interpreted this reminder of his authority almost like a preemptive prodding from Jesus so that his disciples will will actually obey, as though Jesus is expecting them to turn and run. And so it's like he's saying, I have all authority, so you better listen. I don't think that's quite right. The context of this hesitation, this odd word that we have for doubt that's in verse 17 coupled with this gentle promise to be with them forever, in verse 20, leads me to believe that Jesus is offering words of assurance and comfort. You can actually do this. This global mission, you can do it. And to be clear, it's not because you are impressive people. That's not it. That's not it at all. I have all authority. You can do it because I have all authority. The sender of the mission is powerful. He will fulfill his mission. He is also present. See that in verse 20. And this is a strange tension. Have you thought about this? That the sender is present. Hmm. Let me give you an illustration that I think can show the strangeness uh, strangeness of this tension. Suppose you needed someone to fill up your car with petrol. And you came to them and you said, go and fill up the car with petrol. Maybe you've said this to someone, uh, a teenage son or daughter or, or to a friend. There are several implications embedded within that statement. One, the car is low on petrol and it needs filling, obviously. Uh, this person is not currently filling up the car with petrol. I don't recommend going to a petrol station and saying this to someone who's actively doing it. That would be, that'd be weird. And it seems to imply that you are not going with them, right? Imagine you were to say, go and fill up the car with petrol, and surely I will be with you till the end of today. They would say, what? <laughs> you said go. Uh, are you coming with me? This is a weird, that's a weird tension. If we were to say this, it'd be strange. But as we look at Scripture, the rest of the New Testament works for us like glasses or contact lenses. And we can see that what Jesus is talking about is the presence of the Holy Spirit, whom he will send to the disciples at the day of Pentecost. 
We can read about that in Acts chapter 2. And today, we still are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But in Matthew 28, Jesus wants his disciples to understand the command to go where there is this sense of loss. Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. He's not going with them in the way that he had been going with them for the past three years. It's a different type of going with them. But he wants them to feel the assurance of the promise that he is going with them. So I want you to listen to these two commands and feel the difference. Go make disciples and let's go make disciples. Do you feel that? There's a difference there. Both of those are here. They're both here in the text. Go make disciples. Let's go make disciples. The sender of the mission is the authoritative and present God. But not just any God that you might imagine. He is a specific God, a particular God. He is the triune God of the Bible. Remember, Jesus has told the disciples that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and this came from who? The Father. And he is promising to be present with them forever. It's the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission is triune. It has been given to us by the Son, and it is bookended with an appeal to the authority of the Father and the presence of the Spirit. God's mission requires that we tell people who he really is. He is not the Allah of Islam. He is not the conception of God that our secular culture wishes, wishes for. A God that lets them do whatever. They can embrace their materialism, whatever way of life they want to choose. No, it is a particular God with a particular mission. The sender of the mission is the triune God of the Bible. He is authoritative and he is present. And this gives us assurance to know that our inadequacies will not prevent the mission from being accomplished. Praise God. Point number three in the text is the scope of the mission. What is the scope? And it is every people and place. Every people and place. We get this from verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Much has been said and written on the phrase translated as all nations. What is clear is that the scope of God's mission is the whole earth. Jesus is pushing his Jewish disciples to see that their God is not merely the God of Israel. He is the God over all creation. Go preach the gospel to all of them. Jesus is worthy of worship in every tongue and among every people. Now, throughout the sermon, I've used a couple of words and phrases that I want to define. First is on the term people group. This is one of the possible translations of the phrase that is translated here as all nations. One missionary organization defines a people group, uh, and I'm going to quote this because I think this is very helpful. 
They say a people group is an ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity. The most dominant identifier of a people group is their language. For strategic purposes, a people group is the largest group through which the gospel can flow without encountering significant barriers of understanding and acceptance. In the Bible, the Greek word ethne, and this is the word we find here in verse 19, translated as nations, this is most likely referring to ethnic groups or people groups, end quote. A second term I want to define is unreached, which is, of course, in contrast to reached. The same missions group defines unreached as a people group who lacks a community of Christians able to evangelize the rest of the people group without outside help. The only opportunity for the people group to hear about salvation is therefore through an external witness. Most missiologists, those are Christian scholars of missions, they consider 2% of a population becoming Christ followers as the tipping point at which the group is generally considered reached with the gospel. So based on these definitions, a reached people group is one in which there are sufficient indigenous Christians to fulfill the Great Commission among the remainder of their people group without needing outside missionaries. They're certainly not claiming that the other 98% do not matter, but rather the 2% should be able to reach the rest in a self-sufficient manner. Does that make sense? Now you can see how getting survey data about religious affiliation among people groups would affect the strategies of where and how Christians send gospel resources to the world. Where should we send missionaries? Probably to the unreached. This is the conclusion that many Christians, churches, and organizations have come to over the past few decades. The emphasis on reaching the unreached has produced a tidal wave of momentum in sending gospel resources to the world. And there is so much to praise God for in the work of these groups that are pushing the gospel into the hardest to reach places. Their work is critical to the task of the Great Commission. I think we find also that the definitions and suggested percentage markers of religious affiliation are helpful. And when veteran missionaries and cultural anthropologists perform detailed research, the resulting data proves extremely insightful for understanding people groups around the world as well as the health of their churches. But there is a problem. And the problem is this. The vast majority of people groups have not been studied in this detailed manner, especially the groups that are the hardest to reach. This means that when Christians use simple statistics about religious affiliation as the sole basis for global missions strategies, we end up redirecting missionary activity away from groups that clearly still need outside help. And I'll give you just one example. There are many types of examples. I'll give you just one that demonstrates this point. Among certain people groups that are considered reached, uh, my organization, 
has encountered uh, a shocking amount of syncretism. What is that? Syncretism is when a person practices a religion that is a blending together of two or more religions such that the resulting religious practice is no longer faithful to one or both of the original religions. Okay, so I'll give you a specific example within that. A friend of mine from a remote village in Africa, we'll call him Moses, he's told me his personal testimony that as a young man, he regularly visited the witch doctor in his village. His witch doctor believed that Moses was a a faithful African uh, animist. But Moses also went to church every week. Went to a church that claimed to be a Bible church, claimed to be evangelical. In fact, one of the animist spirits that he believed was protecting his house was named Jesus. And he would every week attend his evangelical church and then proceed to make animal sacrifices to Jesus. Moses was practicing animism. He was an animist. But he had adopted some Christian terminology and he attended church. And he saw nothing wrong with this. What is more concerning is that his pastor saw nothing wrong with this. Now imagine if Moses had been asked to fill out a religious affiliation survey by some foreign missions group or even just on a census. Moses will tell you today that he was definitely not a Christian at this time. His conversion came after visiting a missionary-led church in a different people group that taught the scriptures carefully. Moses was cut to the heart when he realized that he was an idolater became a born-again believer. But prior to his conversion, Moses still identified as a Christian, as a conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christian. That's how he identified. He thought of himself that way. And this would mean that his survey would have added to the growing total of those considered reached. Now, we might hear that and think, well, that's just one person. No statistical data is perfect, course that's true but what if Moses is not an outlier what if his experience was fairly common of the other Christians in his church or in his whole village or worse what if this was common in his entire people group the sad reality is that this description is actually common among Christians of some people groups whose Percentage of self-identifying Christians is 2% or more. This is not the only challenge to understanding the true state of the church among people groups. We find heresy, witchcraft, spiritual abuse. There are many concerns. But I want to ask this question. What are we to make of people groups that have churches but no gospel? What do we call that? And sometimes led by pastors who are themselves not born-again Christians. And the members of their churches are also practicing other religions. What do we call that? Perhaps we need to admit that some reached people groups are on the verge of becoming unreached again. The history of the modern missions movement teaches us some important lessons about missions. Lesson number one, unquestionably, 
There is power in preaching the gospel. Amen? There is power in preaching the gospel. With the explosion of missionaries over the past two centuries, hundreds of millions of people have come to Jesus Christ. Lesson number two. Preaching the gospel is only the first half of the Great Commission. It is only the first half of the Great Commission. And when Christians ignore the second half, we put the next generation of the church in jeopardy. This leads us to point number four. What is the mission of the Great Commission? The mission of the Great Commission. It is to make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. The central command of the mission is make disciples. But what does that mean? What does that even mean? Well, Jesus answers that question. He gives us two clarifying actions to define for us what does it mean to make a disciple. First, he says in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, of course, takes place once a person has responded in faith to the gospel message. They've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. They've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. They're buried with Christ and they're raised to the newness of life in Jesus Christ. And baptism pictures that. It is a picture of what has happened. And so the first step towards making a disciple is preaching the gospel. Go preach the gospel. And when they respond in faith, we baptize them. This part of the Great Commission has been widely embraced. Praise God. It has been widely embraced by the modern missions movement. Great efforts have been devoted to bringing the gospel throughout the world. Some of them have been incredibly strategic efforts. Some of them have been more of a shot-in-the-dark variety, but God has been faithful in bringing people to himself. And we ought to look for opportunities to partake in that. But there is a second half to the Great Commission. We must understand that evangelism is not the sum total of the Great Commission. We are called to make disciples by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. According to Jesus, discipleship is missions. Discipleship is missions. Learning God's word to grow in Christ is missions. We've, I think we've often separated these things. Raising your children in the faith is missions. We pray for their salvation. This is not to suggest that we only focus on our part of the world. We've already considered the scope of the mission. The scope of the mission forces us to look beyond Australia, to look beyond America, to find ways to participate in global missions efforts. But we would be wrong to conclude that the work of discipleship in our own cities is anything less than doing the work of the Great Commission. So let's return to one of the questions I asked earlier. What is the task of missions in places where churches are already present? Well, in the parts of the world where people groups are on the verge of becoming unreached again, one of the primary tasks of missions must be to equip indigenous pastors and leaders. 
they must be equipped in the Word of God. We must do theological education as missions. The pastors and church leaders must know the Word and live it out. We simply cannot say, this group has hit 2%, let's move on. We must look at the health of that 2% or 20% and ask, do they have faithful indigenous leaders who are able and committed to influencing the rest of their people? Remember that our working definition of a reached people group is that the local Christians are able to reach the rest. That's how we define a reached people group. But they cannot do it if their leaders are okay with syncretism or if their leaders cannot distinguish false teaching from sound doctrine or if their leaders are living in unrepentant sin. I think we have some lessons there for the churches in the West as well. Turning to the second question I raised earlier, what is the relationship between the task of missions and our own personal growth as disciples? And let me suggest that the relationship is direct. It is direct. Participating in the Great Commission is part of your own discipleship. Living as a disciple means making disciples. And making disciples helps us to grow as disciples. Practically, what does this look like in our lives? Probably the most famous way of describing the application of the Great Commission is to say that there are goers and there are senders and everyone else is disobedient. I think that is a faithful description. All right, God calls some to be missionaries, to be full-time in the work of sharing the gospel cross-culturally. And he calls all other Christians to provide the support for those missionaries. That is a, a great way to apply the text. I do think that fails to incorporate the full vision of discipleship that Jesus was presenting. So I'm not rejecting that model, but I want to add to that. I want to suggest that all Christians are called to be goers and growers. All Christians are called to be goers and growers. Let me explain. If going is understood to be the call to go make disciples throughout the world, then we obey this command by doing evangelism and teaching other Christians God's word wherever we are and no matter what our job is. That's how we obey the going part of the Great Commission. All of the disciples, disciples were called to go. Every Christian. So we should all look for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, peers. Look for opportunities to share the gospel. And as we grow and we begin to demonstrate a pattern of maturity, we look for opportunities to disciple another believer. And we do it with God's word. Teach your children. Invest in the kids and the youth in your church. Meet with the younger Christian and encourage them in their walk with Christ. We are all called to be goers. Go and make disciples. Some within that category will be called to go full-time as missionaries. 
And I wonder if you've ever asked the Lord if he would call you to be full-time. Some Christians may go through their whole lives never even asking the Lord that question because they're afraid of the answer. Let me tell you, if God calls you into full-time ministry, it is a good thing to obey. If he does not call you into full-time ministry, then the best thing you can do is do not join the ministry. God has called you where you are to be a light to the world. The people that are in your circles of influence, God might be calling you to be the one that leads them to Christ. Being in ministry is not like the top-tier version of the Christian life. That is a faulty way of thinking. Obedience to the Lord, wherever that is, that's top-tier Christianity. God calls all Christians to be goers, but he also calls all Christians to be growers. What do I mean by this? We often think of the Great Commission from the vantage point of the one who is on a mission, rather than the vantage point of the one for whom there is a mission. We are the ones doing the reaching and no longer the ones who need to be reached. This is reasonable thinking, absolutely. However, if making a disciple includes teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, when is that ever done in this life? Who's done? I'm not. I definitely am not. So then our own personal growth towards Christ-likeness, this is actually part of the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Wow. God did not intend for the church to go make a billion infants in Christ. He calls us to make disciples who believe and who are learning to obey, learning to obey all that Christ has commanded. And I think Jesus' statement there is shorthand for the full counsel of God. Paul writes in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. We are to learn God's word as an essential component of our growth as disciples. When this does not happen, when the church is not growing as disciples, generation after generation after generation, some of the people groups start sliding towards being unreached again. Have you made it a priority to spend time with God in his word? The Bible is the primary tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit in helping you and me to grow towards Christ-likeness. It's not his only tool, but it is his primary tool. So as we close this morning, this evening, I never preach in the evening, as we close this evening, remember that wherever the church is filled with Christians who are engaging in the full mission of the Great Commission, seeking to make disciples by preaching an undefiled gospel and teaching the word of God among each other, we can be sure that God is at work. This is his great commission. And we remember Jesus' promise to his disciples that he would be with them to the very end of the age. And of course, all the disciples in Galilee died before the end of the age. So clearly, this promise is for us today. It's for every generation of Christians. 
generations after generations. He's present. And we can know that will be true until Christ finally does return at the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to a truly great commission. And we know that you will fulfill the great commission, not because we are impressive, not because we have perfect faith, but because you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you are with us as we go into this world to preach the gospel and as we go into the world to make disciples by teaching them your word. Would you help us to grow as disciples? We want to be more like you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to the sermon, shall we all rise and let us sing our last song together.
like some prayer, please come down the front and uh, there'll be someone to pray with you and for you. Uh, there is some information. If you'd like to support Ben, if you'd like to pray for Ben's ministry, uh, his ministry serving the Lord, then there is some uh, a bookmark and some information that you can come and get off Ben, have a chat to him. He's going to hang around. He'd love to have a chat to you uh, and answer any questions that you might have. Let me finish with the blessing. Father, even though our faith is far from perfect, even in our hesitations, I pray, Father, that you would go with us this week in the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might be goers, that we might be growers, that we might influence those around us and introduce them to the Lord Jesus. And Go with us this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.